0: Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in John chapter 2. I'm going to cover the first 11 verses of John chapter 2, covering the first miracle that Jesus did at Cana, the wedding feast at Cana. There are no parallel passages in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so we will stay here in John in verses 1 through 11. The context is, in the previous chapter, verses 35 through 51, Jesus chose his first five disciples, and then, after that was over, they went to a wedding feast at Cana in Galilee. so we'll we'll start our exposition of this in verses one through five of chapter two, John chapter two verse one on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. when the wine ran out. The mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. First of all, the time indicator on the third day. That's not very clear. There are several options as to what that could refer to. Option number one, it could be on the third day from when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God. If you will recall... In our, in the audio covering the last verses of John chapter 1, there was, there was a lot of re- references to the next day. We had the commission from the Sanhedrin coming to see John the Baptist, and then on the next day, Jesus appeared to John, and John said, Behold the Lamb of God. And then on the next day, Andrew and another disciple were standing to John, they saw Jesus coming by, and they went to spend the night with him. Then on the next day, Jesus told, chose Peter as his disciple, and then they headed off to Galilee, so, you got four days there, and I would suspect that this third day here in verse 1 means on the third day after they headed off to Galilee. They went to a wedding in Cana, because Cana's in Galilee. So, that's the first option. Another option is it's the third day after Jesus had his conversation with Nathanael. That's at the end of John chapter 1, when Philip, who was from Bethsaida originally, went over to Cana, which is eight or nine miles north of Nazareth, right west of Tiberias still in galilee he went over to galilee and, and said nathanael i found the messiah jesus of nazareth the son of joseph come see him it was three days after that maybe well, that's possible some the third day since jesus had come into galilee could be that but see all these that's still those three options are very close to each other could be the third day of the marriage feast some people say on the thir- there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and on the third day of the wedding, of the third day of the marriage feast, this is what happened. And it could be that too. Basically, we don't know what the third day refers to, but it's shortly thereafter. After Jesus had picked his disciples, he had not started his ministry yet, and he had not done any miracles. So, so we do know that. Now, Cana of Galilee. Let me read you from Easton's Illustrated Dictionary, just to give you a feel for the where this first miracle took place. The word means. Reedy, R E E D Y, Reedy. R-E-D-Y. A lot of reeds there. A town of Galilee near Capernaum. It's actually, if you look at the map, it's southwest of Capernaum a little ways. Here our Lord wrought his first miracle, the turning of water into wine. It is also mentioned as the birthplace of Nathanael. Nathanael, also known as Bartholomew, of course, was from Cana. It is not mentioned in the Old Testament. It has been de- identified with the modern Kana el Jalil, also called Kurbet Kana a place eight or nine miles north of Nazareth. Others have identified it with Kepher Cana, which lies on the direct road to the Sea of Galilee, about five miles northeast of Nazareth. So basically you're saying either eight or nine miles north of Nazareth or five miles northeast of Nazareth. It doesn't matter. It's relatively close to Nazareth is where Cana was. And 12 miles in a direct course from Tiberias. Tiberias is on the Sea of Galilee on the southwest shore. And you go 12 miles west of Tiberias and you end up at Cana. It is called Cana of Galilee to distinguish it from Cana of Asher. Which is mentioned in Joshua chapter 19 verse 28. So here we are at the feast. And John the Apostle tells us that the mother of Jesus was there. Now, was she there as a guest or was she there as the wedding planner i think she was the wedding planner she was very officious she told her son we need some wine they've run out of wine around here we need some wine she ordered the servants around whatever jesus says whatever jesus says do you do it so she might have been asked to run the banquet by the master of the banquet she might it might have been one of her relatives that was getting married at the feast and that makes sense her relatives would ask her to go to a feast And she would ask her son, and then of course his son would then ask his newly named disciples. Some of the ancient early Christian writers thought it was John himself getting married at the banquet, but that's, of course, no way to know that. Now notice there's no mention of Joseph, only Mary. Why? Well, he's probably dead by now. If he was alive, he would have probably been at the wedding. Now the Jews thought that attending a wedding was an act of kindness, and as anybody who is invited to a wedding at least me when i'm invited to a wedding i always feel like i'm doing this out of gratitude to the person because i don't like weddings i just talked to a young chinese girl who's getting well she's already got her marriage certificate she's getting ready to get married and she was worried that the people that were helping her would get tired of the weddings the women who were helping her i said look women love weddings they will be glad to help you at your wedding don't worry about it weddings women just love weddings and the Jews thought that if you went to a wedding, it was an act of kindness. And if you're a man, yes, I believe it's an act of kindness. Now, note that Jesus, you know, Jesus didn't have to go to this wedding, but he probably went just as a matter of hospitality. And because he did that, this shows that Jesus was operating as an exemplary human being. He didn't say, I've got more important spiritual things to do now. will be honest with you, that's what I would have said, just to avoid having to go but Jesus went and did a mundane thing like this even after he had just chosen all his disciples. Now, going to that wedding feast might have ironically given ammunition to Jesus' his critics. In Matthew eleven nineteen, we read this, Jesus speaking concerning his critics, quote, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The they that say this, of course, are his pharisaical critics. Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But Jesus, of course, never worried about that. He went to all kinds of dinner parties and feasts and such. That was not a problem with him. It was a problem with his critics. Notice the fact that he went to a wedding is an argument against the asceticism of the medieval monks, something I had never thought about. You want to knock down Catholic monasticism, just say, well, hey, look at Jesus. He came eating and drinking. He went to a wedding feast. You monks never do that. Now note that going to this wedding feast, where there was, I'm sure, a lot of food, this was just a few days past. his 40 days starving in the wilderness. Let's assume that those, there were four days that I mentioned in, in, in John. The next day, the next day, passages at the end of John 1. Then we got after three days in Canaan. that's a week. And, of course, there's disagreement on exactly when the temptation occurred. In the ministry of John the Baptist, it was somewhere around there, but it couldn't have been more than a week, maybe two weeks. I don't know. It was just very recently he'd almost starved to death in the wilderness. Hadn't eaten for 40 days, and now he is at a feast. So Jesus knew how to do with and how to do without, just like the Apostle Paul. He says, I'm happy in in abundance, and I'm happy in in want. Interesting application there for all you preachers out there. Now we read in verse 3. That the wine had run out when the wine had run out. Now, why had the wine run out? Well, it could be because of the intemperance of the guests. They just drank too much. It could be because the family giving the wedding was too poor to buy enough wine wine for the feast. Or it could be a larger number of guests showed up than were expected. Wedding crashers, if you will. I don't know what the custom was back then, but maybe it was open invitation and they misjudged. Anyway, somebody screwed up. And screwing up in that situation is really bad, because in the East, these parties were extremely important socially, and it would be a terrible disgrace to run out of wine at a wedding banquet. So we read in verse 5, Mary goes to her son and says, excuse me, verse 3, Mary goes to her son and says, they have no wine. They, meaning the people, the, the groom's family that was putting on the wedding feast, they've got no wine. She's very concerned. She didn't want the family to be put to shame and disgrace and was probably one of her relatives. Now, why did she tell Jesus that? Well, she was dropping a broad hint to Jesus. She probably suspected he could easily do a miracle to fix this problem. He hadn't done any miracles up to this point. True, at least none that we know about. But she had heard wonderful things of Jesus. She had had, well, for one thing, she knew she was a virgin when he was born. That's, That's enough right there to tell you that this son of hers is a little bit unusual she had had an angel appear to her, and at the Magni- the Annunciation to Mary, which provoked her magnificat. The angel came and said that you're going to have the Messiah. The shepherds then sh- showed up at her door when she had the messiah and said and said, uh, "We saw angels. they said that there was a messiah that the Messiah is here. She took the baby Simeon and Anna. Into the temple and they prophesied over the baby. He's for the brawling, falling and rising of many in Israel. I think Simeon's prophecy, or maybe it was Anna's. I can't remember. But the the famous prophecies when she took the baby to get to to get purified in the temple when he was just born. So she knew she Jesus was something special, and this is what she was hinting at. I ain't got any wine, Jesus. What you gonna do about it? She knew he was the Messiah, and by golly, Messiahs worked miracles. So let's let's get it done here, Jesus. Now, Jesus responds in verse 4. He says, woman, what does that have to do with us? Well, first of all, let's take this translation of woman. I'm using the New American Standard Bible here, and that's a very literal translation. And so literally, the Greek says woman. But that's a bad translation because we don't, we don't address ladies with the, with the noun of direct address, woman. It's difficult to translate. The ESV calls it woman also. So does the Holman Christian Study Bible. So I looked at some of the looser translations, and we have the NIV has Dear Woman, which is my favorite translation. The New Living Translation just leaves the noun or direct address out at all. It didn't say anything. It just says, what has that got to do with me? It doesn't say, woman, what has this got to do with me? Well, what's this got to do with us? The contemporary English version says, mother. Well, that's a very loose translation because the word isn't mother, it's woman. But they say, mother, what has that got to do with us? Well, I like Dear Woman. Now, in the south down here, we'd say, ma'am. Ma'am, what's that got to do? I think we would. It's a little bit informal to say, ma'am. Madam, what does that have to do with us? Ma'am, short for madam. Well, Jesus says to his mother, madam, that's too formal. So my dear woman, so let's, I I think works good, works well. So let's look at verse four. Jesus said to her, my dear woman, what does that have to do with us? You see, it's much gentler when you translate it that way. Now, the next question is, well, before we leave the question of woman, let's look at some other passages where Jesus where Jesus used that noun of direct address, woman. In John 19:26, When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that was John, this is when he's on the cross, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Well, if you translate it, he said to his mother, My dear woman, behold your son. See how much nicer that is. When he, that was his mother he addressed that way. He also addressed the Syrophoenician woman that way in Matthew 15, verse 28. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as she wished. And her daughter was healed at once. O woman? How about this, though? Then Jesus said to her, My dear woman, your faith is great. See, it works so much better, my dear woman. Thank you, NIV. Samaritan woman, Jesus addressed this way. John four twenty-one. Jesus said to her, Woman? "'Believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father.'" Woman! But let's translate it this way. Jesus said to her, "'My dear woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain,' etc., etc. You see how much nicer that sounds. He called Mary Magdalene woman. John 20, verse 15. This is when he met Mary at the tomb. He, she, Mary was, Magdalene was the first person he met after his resurrection. Jesus said to her, "'Woman, why are you weeping?' How about this? Jesus said to her, My dear woman, why are you weeping? See, it just sounds so much nicer. All right. Jesus says to his mother, My dear woman, what has that got to do with us? Verse 4. Well, there's two options here of what he's saying. Now, option one is he's saying, Look, we don't have any business interfering in this wedding. It's none of our business. This ain't got anything to do with us. Let them run out of wine. But the problem with that view is that Jesus actually did interfere in the wedding when he made the wine. So I don't think that option makes a lot of sense. Here's another option. He's saying to Mary, look, as a Messiah, you, my mother Mary, have no business suggesting when I should or should not do a miracle. I will submit to you in all earthly family things, but by golly, when it comes to when I start my Messianic ministry, that's between me and my Heavenly Father. Jesus was subject to her as her son, but not as the Messiah. Human authority never overrides divine authority. Another example that I think, uh, remember when Jesus got left behind at a Passover and he's at the temple, he's about 12 years old, and his parents come in, what have you done, what have you done, why, 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 we've been worried sick over you, and Jesus said, hey, I'm doing about my father's business, that trumps earthly business, so I suggest that this is what Jesus means when he says, what has this got to do with us, doing a miracle is messianic, and what's that got to do with you and me right now? <laughs> which is basically the same thing as saying, What's that got to do with you, Mary? It's it, nothing. All right. But now another question arises well, if he's saying it doesn't have anything to do with us and I'm not going to do a miracle because I'm the Messiah, he did do a miracle. So it sounds like he's contradicting what he just told Mary. It's not time for me to start my Messianic ministry. Well, the answer to that, the short answer is he did do the miracle, but he did it very privately and quietly so people wouldn't get all excited and prematurely proclaim him as Messiah. He hadn't even picked but five of his disciples yet. He had a long way to go in his ministry. And so he did the miracle so that it was privately done. It saved the family the shame and embarrassment. He, he, he pulled it off pretty good, pr- pretty well, the way he did it. We will show in just a minute how he did it. But we move on at verse 5. His mother Mary said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. So apparently, either because of some conversation that John left out, or because Mary had discerned on Jesus' face, face or his demeanor that he was going to do the miracle. And she understood that what he's saying is, hey, don't tell me when I'm going to start to do my miracles. However, having said that, I am going to do the miracle not to start my ministry, but just to, to save you the trouble. His mother showed implicit trust in Jesus. She knew he was special. And she told the servants, whatever he says, I don't care. Whatever he says, you do it. That shows Mary's complete trust in Jesus. We go now to John 2, verses 6 through 11. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. I'm using the NIV here so I can get the English units. 20 to 30 gallons in each of these water jars. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some water, now draw some out, and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have, got, have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Let me just take the last verse first. He revealed his glory, but who did he reveal it to? He revealed it to his disciples first. Only the service knew that the miracle had been done. Not even the master of the banquet knew. Mary knew, of course. But basically, he revealed the glory to his disciples. He's trying to get them used to the idea that they are following the Messiah. They're not just following an ignorant carpenter. They're following somebody special. All right, now, what were the six stone water jars there for? They were probably for washing hands, 20 to 30 gallons. That's a lot of water. And when, if it's a lot of water, it's also a lot of wine. The guests would be well supplied for the full seven-day wedding feast. The weddings back then were, whew, I'd hate to go to a wedding back then. Seven days is all I can go through for an hour. Seven days of drinking. So, but nonetheless, when you've got six stone jars and each one, holds 20 to 30 gallons, that's 120 to 180 gallons of wine. <laughs> so it's a lot of wine that would take care of the shortage. Now why did he use water pots? Jesus didn't choose the vessels already used for holding wine, so people couldn't disparage his miracle. They could say, hey, he just created wine that was left over in the pot. No, he wanted to do the miracle in a water pot so that none of his disciples could think, ah, oh, he didn't really change water into wine, he just He's just using the wine that's already in the pot. So this is one more. See, that's the thing about Jesus' miracles. They're not like these Todd Bentley so-called miracles, you know, where it's so easy to disprove them. Jesus, whenever he did miracles, there were always witnesses that, and they were credible witnesses, and and his witnesses were so well attested that nobody ever denied that he did the miracles. Not even his bitterest enemies, the Pharisees, ever denied that he did a miracle. And once again, you can see him taking care to show that his miracle was provable, that it was evidentiary. And going along with that idea, you notice in verse 7 that it was the servants who filled the jars with water. Jesus got the servants to fill the jars with water instead of him, so they could be witnesses. They knew that they had put nothing but water in the jars, and then knew that wine came out, so they knew the miracle was true. And I can't help but think, wonder what in the world they thought. Who is this guy that changes water into wine? It must have blown their minds again. For evidentiary purposes, in verse 7, we see that Jesus got the servants to fill the water pots to the brim with water, so it was obvious no wine could have been added to the jar. It was only water in the jar, all the way from bottom to top to the brim. Nothing but water, so we won't have any question about the liquid that was changed. It was water changed into wine. It was not wine that had been added to the jar secretly in some kind of a fraud now, the master of the banquet in verse 10 is very impressed with his nice wine because Jesus, Jesus doesn't make junk. He made good wine. So that's something you often don't think about in this miracle. He made good wine. He didn't make that cheap hubcap stuff. It was Chardonnay or something. I don't know. It was something good. And so the wedding master said, this is amazing. Usually at the end of a banquet, the cheap wine comes out because the guests are so drunk. They can't tell the difference between the good wine and the bad wine. But now, at the end of this banquet, when everybody's drunk, you give them the good wine. Woo, what kind of a host is this? He says to the bridegroom. The wedding banquet was hired by the bridegroom to run this banquet, and the wedding host says to the bridegroom, Whoa. He called the bridegroom aside in verse 9 and says, Wow, man, what you did is pretty good. You didn't save the cheap wine to last. You did the the expensive wine. So not only is the groom saved from embarrassment of running out of wine, he's actually praised for serving good wine at the end. Now notice that doesn't mean that... Uh, let me let me br- bring out something here. Some people who like to cavil and criticize say that Jesus only changed the water into wine as it was drawn out. He didn't make 20 or 30 gallons of wine in each pot. He didn't make 120 to 180 gallons of wine. He just changed the wine that was drawn out. Why? What's the purpose of saying that? To keep Jesus clear of a charge that he provided a lot of of wine to get people drunk. I know this was some fundamentalist in the South that came up with this idea. Listen, first of all, it's not Jesus' fault if people misuse the miracle. I mean, you know, Jesus gives us all good things to enjoy. And if we abuse those good things and we get fat or we get drunk or whatever, he gives us a lot of leisure time and we get lazy. That's not his fault. That's our fault. So if anybody got drunk, it was not Jesus' fault. It was their fault. Now, Adam Clark says Jesus didn't get anybody drunk at the wedding because the guests were, quote, select and holy. Well, I don't know where in the world he gets that quaint idea, the guests were select and holy, and they wouldn't get drunk. No, I don't think so. And besides, notice that the master of the banquet is talking in generalities. He's saying in general, in, 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 at wedding banquets, in general. The cheap wine is served at the last, but he wasn't talking about and, and, and people get drunk at these wedding banquets in general, but he wasn't talking about the Pacific wedding banquet that he was that he was in charge of here so and that's a stupid thing. Jesus cannot be accused of getting people drunk with too much wine. It's nonsense now here's a couple of ap- application points before we figure this before we finish this audio. the first sign that Jesus ever do, did was done at a marriage. The noblest sanction that can be done at a God given institution. The first of the signs of Jesus was done at a wedding. Well, that's pushing it a little bit, but you know applications they do that, preachers get carried away. But yeah, weddings are God given institution. This sign also shows that when when Jesus' people are in need, God can miraculously supply. Now that's a good application. Mary's in a situation where there was no human, physical answer. And Jesus said, what you worried about, Mary? Boom, got it got it taken care of. Just like when they were in the wilderness with not enough food to feed first 5,000 and then 4,000 people, Jesus says, what you worried about? Jesus looks at Philip at the feeding of the 4,000 and testing his faith, John says, testing his faith, says, get some food for us. Where are you going to get it? Jesus loves to do things for us when we cannot do it for themselves. That doesn't mean we don't go out and, and do natural things. I'm, I'm sure Mary went out and bought wine. Of course, you do everything that you're supposed to do, but I don't care. You plan, you do the best you can, and things somehow don't work out like you planned, and you get yourself in a hard place. Jesus loves to get you out of those hard places if we just trust Him. All right, that's enough for my little homily here on John chapter 2, verses 1-11, through Jesus' first miracle at Cana. In our next audio, we'll take up verses 12 through 22 and look at Jesus' first cleansing of the temple at Passover. I hope you listened to that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.